You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and I extend a welcome to each and every one of you for joining me. Uh, It's the first Sunday of Black History Month, and we celebrate that, as well as it's being Super Bowl Sunday. And for those uh, Buccaneers fans and Chiefs fans out there uh, hoping for a great game, uh, actually, as a Patriots fan, longtime Patriots fan, uh, the real reason I'm going to be watching the game is that I want to see how Tom Brady does to see if he can earn that seventh Super Bowl ring and uh, cement his place as the greatest uh, football quarterback of the modern era uh, for all time. So good luck to both teams. I hope it's a great game, and I hope there's some really excellent commercials. So once I get finished uh, recording the show and getting that packaged, we'll be settling in to watch the Super Bowl. With that being said, let's get the show started. And as always, we start off with our rundown of our current status with the coronavirus Uh, To date, we have uh, 27 million uh, confirmed cases here in the United States and 462,000 confirmed deaths from the disease. And also, uh, we should note that uh, with the addition of a third vaccine coming into the mix from Johnson & Johnson, uh, we should see an uptick in the number of vaccinations uh, uh, distributed and injected into the arms of Americans. Right now, we sit at 59.3 million doses of the vaccine have been distributed, and 39 million and a little bit uh, have been administered to patients here in the U.S. Uh, And what we should note, and, and kind of some positive news coming out of the coronavirus front, is that there is, and it seems to be, a continuing gradual decrease uh, in the number of cases that are reported uh, each day, uh, the number of people that are hospitalized. Uh, One report I saw uh, coming from the medical community was that hospitalizations are down about 12% to 15% uh, across the country, with new cases down also about 15%. Uh, The expectation is that deaths, which lag behind uh, hospitalizations, will also see a drop. So our our numbers are starting to move in a good direction, Uh, but this doesn't mean, people, that we need to lighten up on what we need to do. Uh, The vaccine alone is not going to do it. We're going to still need to maintain all of the mandates that we've been given by the medical and scientific community. Uh, Specifically, we're going to still need to wear our masks when we go out uh, in public. Uh, When we are in groups, we need to maintain six feet of social distance or more. And when we can't do that, we should wear our mask uh, in that group settings as well, as well as continue all of the personal hygiene things that we've been told to do, washing our hands frequently, not touching our eyes, nose, or mouth, and generally just taking care of ourselves. So as we continue to monitor what's going on with the coronavirus, hopefully we're going to see this trend toward uh, numbers coming down continue. 
which will be some really, really positive news, which we've, we've really needed and we've waited, you know, nearly a year to see. So hopefully, you know, if we all continue to do our part, we'll continue to see progress made. So let's do what we all need to do, everybody, and let's make sure we continue to keep driving those numbers down. And with that, let's turn to our focus on politics, which is what this show is all about. Uh, each week, we look at the mechanics of the political system and get into what's going on and, and what we as the electorate, as the voters, as the citizens of this country can do in order to help move our political system uh, toward a more perfect uh, response to the needs of uh, United States citizens. So uh, over the course of the last week, um, believe it or not, it's now into the third week uh, of the Biden-Harris administration. And uh, what we have seen, you know, has been a flurry of executive orders that have come out of the White House. Uh, but also we're starting to see some legislation uh, coming through the House and the Senate. Specifically, uh, this past week, the Democrats put through the Biden administration's $2.19 trillion COVID relief package called the American Rescue Plan. And that has been uh, voted on uh, in the Senate and uh, using what's called the budget reconciliation process. The Democrats were able to get that uh, bill passed through the Senate on a 51 vote majority, uh, even though the Republicans added nearly 500 amendments to the bill at the last minute. Uh, th- this is not unusual. Uh, minority parties will typically add amendments to a bill in order to either get additional things added or more likely, if it's an opposition measure, to slow the process down uh, for political reasons. In any event, uh, it took uh, the Senate uh, just about 15 hours to get through all of the amendments uh, that were attached to the bill by the Republicans. Uh, A handful of them uh, were actually enacted, uh, but the overwhelming majority of them were rejected uh, by a party on a party line vote. So the Biden plan for you know relief for the American people, uh, including things like fourteen hundred dollars direct payments, uh, you know relief and aid for states and local governments uh, for uh, pandemic costs, uh, relief and assistance for schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of those things uh, passed through the Senate and now will be reconciled between the House bill and the Senate bill before they go to President Biden's desk, where the expectation is that he will sign the bill. Now, one thing that's come out in the news uh, that actually uh, the Democrats are, are leading with is the fact that they do not anticipate that the provision in the Uh, package that calls for moving the minimum wage in our country to $15. It is, and this is in the words of President Biden, 
Uh, it is something he would like to see happen, but he doesn't hold a lot of hope that it's going to happen. The Republicans are adamant that they do not want to see a $15 minimum wage as part of this package. Uh, so it remains to be seen how the Democrats are going to come back and try and get that measure through uh, through some other legislation, whether it's a standalone bill or attached to another piece of legislation later on down the road. Uh, but it should be noted that this was the first uh, major piece of legislation to come out in the new administration under the rules of the budget reconciliation uh, provisions in the Senate, which means that uh, bills that are uh, directly tied to the budget of the United States of America can be recommended for a vote out of the Finance Committee and then will only need a 51 vote uh, simple majority in order to be enacted rather than the 60 vote uh, supermajority that would be needed otherwise. And, you know, the Democrats and particularly the Finance Committee under the chairmanship of Senator. Uh, Bernie Sanders has made it clear that they are willing to use this mechanism when necessary in order to get legislation through that they would like to see through where the Republican half of the Senate uh, has dug in their heels and is opposed. Now, President Biden is on the record as saying his goal and his wish is to see bipartisanship, that is to see legislation come through the Senate with both Democrat and Republican support, but his number one priority is to get uh, aid to the American people and get other you know, of his administrative priorities through uh, as quickly as possible uh, with or without the Democrats. I want to talk a little bit uh, about the impacts of, of this process uh, in, in a couple of minutes, but I just want to point out that, you know, this idea uh, is not new. It is something that has been used many times uh, over the, the last uh, years, the last few decades, and it, it is a, a, a well-formed and well-understood uh, process that comes out of the Senate Finance Committee uh, as a way of moving the agenda forward when you have a substantial minority opposition. So, I mean, this is nothing new. However, you know, as the Democrats are saying, this is not how they really would like to proceed forward with their agenda. They are hoping that they can find, you know, common ground with the Republicans and move things through the Senate in a bipartisan fashion, uh, demonstrating that, you know, President Biden's uh, call for unity within, you know, the legislative branch uh, is taking hold and is is making progress, which is something that we, the the people, really, really want to see. There's an overwhelming majority, uh, much more than two-thirds of the American people. Uh, actually, it's closer to perhaps as much as 70% of the American people want to see Democrats and Republicans work together in order to address and solve the issues that are, are facing our country at the present time, including the pandemic, including the economic crisis, the, the housing crisis with uh, uh, rent, uh, uh, rental evictions and mortgage foreclosures looming 
uh, on the horizon, you know, and, and all of the elements that, you know, we have been wrestling with over the last year going through 2020 and initially, you know, going back over the last two to four years uh, back into the prior administration. So, you know, there is a, an overwhelming pressure on the House and Senate to work in that bipartisan fashion and get the job done that, that we, the voters, sent them to Washington to do. Uh, on top of that, and, you know, as if, you know, distractions and, and crises weren't enough, the impeachment trial, uh, the second impeachment trial, that is, of former President Donald Trump, uh, is set to commence uh, tomorrow, as this show is being aired on Monday. Uh, the second impeachment is slated to start in the Senate uh, on Tuesday, the trial, that is. And, you know, it is expected to be relatively short. Uh, some analysts are saying it, it should be somewhere around a week, maybe uh, 10 days at the max. Uh, but it should be much quicker and much more concise than the first impeachment trial, uh, primarily because uh, it, it is really a single issue uh, indictment or impeachment article, uh, the incitement to insurrection. Uh, and, you know, there are, you know, very few witnesses that I understand are slated to be called. Uh, much of the, the testimony will be in presenting the arguments uh, for the impeachment to the senators and then calling for the vote. So as I said, let's, um, let's take a look at you know, what the upcoming agenda and the, the things that are going on in the uh, federal government, the legislative branch in particular, uh, what that's that's going to mean as we go forward, you know, into the Biden administration and beyond. Uh, as I said, um, the Democrats are willing, uh, obviously, to use the budget reconciliation uh, powers to get those items on their agenda that are related to the budget of the United States uh, passed through the Senate on a 51 vote. Um, you know, majority vote only. Um, and, you know, obviously this is something that, you know, the Republicans uh, stand in opposition to. But as we look at this process and, you know, given and, and with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, looking back at, at the prior administration in the last four years, um, you know, if, if, if I were offering advice to both political parties, it would somewhat fall along these lines. Um, to the Democrats, I, I concur that you should be willing to use this tool when, you know, it is absolutely necessary to do so. But I urge you to make sure that you have exhausted the options of trying to achieve bipartisan support and pass the bills through on a majority vote that includes both Democrats and Republicans. You know, as I said just a few minutes ago, this would indicate to the American people that the, the tendency we have seen over the last group of years uh, is that, you know, the, the gridlock in Congress or getting nothing done or the, the bipartisan bickering that's been going forward may be starting to wind down a little bit 
and the American people will see their elected officials actually get something done, uh, which is, you know, obviously, you know, the the objective Um, for the Democrats. As I said, I'd caution against, you know, overusing this rule, um, you know, unless you have gone through the process of trying to work with the other side, trying to achieve bipartisanship and, and get both Democrat and Republican sponsorship of the items on your agenda you want to move forward. Um, the, the risk here is that you are going to, to alienate even further the, the, the far right or the hard right of the Republican Party and basically create the battlefield uh, for the upcoming midterms in 2022, uh, where you know Republicans are going to try and you know beat you up over the fact that you didn't work in a bipartisan fashion. All you did was force things through using your your majority. And you know it should be noted, there's nothing wrong with you know putting legislation through when you have the majority. Uh, It's one of the flaws that people often cite about the Obama administration, that they did not make as effective use of their majorities in the House and Senate in the first two years of the Obama administration. They did not use that to the full limit that they could uh, in an effort to, you know, basically, you know, resolve that very issue. Uh, that you know they wanted to appear that you know they were they were bipartisan in nature that they wanted to appear that they were working with the Republicans and not against them. However, what they didn't count on was 2010, where the Republicans used that uh, lack of aggressiveness, uh, I'll call it that, and basically took over the Senate. And once they did that. Then the Republicans exercised their majority to obstruct much of the Obama uh, agenda for the the subsequent six years. And that carried through into the four years of the Trump administration as well, where we saw a Republican Party very much uh, saddled in and, and strapped into its power and flexing that muscle at every opportunity to to stymie democratic approaches to to governing uh, through legislation through you know Mitch McConnell's well documented and and uh, self admitted status as the Grim Reaper where bills would come to his desk and you know just never be heard from again so the Republicans were not afraid to utilize their majority. And I say to the Democrats, you need to not be afraid to use yours as well. And I'll tell you why. One of the things that will most assuredly convince, you know, the, the people in, in, in the political spectrum, i.e. the, you know, Republicans, the right and conservative, those groups uh, to to consider, you know, bipartisan approach and working with you is to show the results of successful legislation getting through and to show that it actually has benefited the American people. Because as we've said on this show many times, uh, you know, when we're talking about the pandemic, the pandemic doesn't go check your voter status to see if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent before it, it infects you. It infects everybody. 
you know, of the, you know, 27 million people who have been infected, uh, I dare say that a, a significant chunk of those people are, in fact, you know, conservative, right-wing Republican voters who have been infected and who have died. Uh, COVID doesn't care about who you voted for. So, you know, the, the idea that an, an approach to addressing these problems, you know, from the federal government and, and the state and local governments as well, that addresses the problems of everyone will work wonders in terms of helping to convince those who, you know, did not vote for, you know, President Biden in the last election, or maybe, you know, who, who did vote Republican. But, you know, once you see that, hey, these, these things are generating results, so, you know, maybe I can support them, you know, in some way. It doesn't mean I'm going to vote Democratic, but it does mean that I will encourage, you know, my elected officials to support the agenda on these specific items that are being put forward by the Democratic Party because they are good for the entire country. Let me repeat that, because they are good for the entire country. Uh, and, you know, from a, a Democratic standpoint, you know, you, you need to make sure that as you bring these elements of your agenda in place, that they are, in fact, showing results, that they are getting results and helping the American people. That's going to be the best way to convince, you know, voters to remain in the Democratic camp or come over to the Democratic camp in greater numbers than they did in the 2020 election. So, you know, for for Democrats specifically, I would I would also suggest and I, I don't know if you've ever had a, a conversation or a debate or a discussion with someone who is a, quote, conspiracy theorist, close quote, or not. But I can tell you that um, most times it ends up being a, a, an exercise in futility. And, you know, for those of you that are, that are out there that may adhere to some of the, the conspiracies that are out there, um, you know, bear with me, hear me out. So, you know, in, in, in occasions where, you know, I have had a, a, a debate or a discussion or a conversation with a so-called conspiracy theorist, um, what I have come away realizing is that essentially, uh, for the most part, it's generally an exercise in futility. Um, you are not going to convince the, you know, the ultra-right uh, political thinking in this country with words alone, as I was just saying. You need to show them your actions, show them what you are accomplishing, and let that do your talking for you. Uh, I would say, you know, it's a pretty fair statement to make that even those who, you know, are, are ad, what is it I want to say, even those that are, you know, strict adherence to the hashtag Biden's not my president group. Um, I would guess that when the stimulus checks get into their bank account, that they're going to cash them. Um, you know, I, I have actually had that discussion with a, a few people uh, that I know who are, you know, hardcore Republican, you know, 
right wing supporters and, you know, who adamantly say, you know, that Biden is not my president. And, you know, the, the, the only way that, you know, I have come back to that is to say, so does that mean that you are going to return the stimulus check to the Treasury Department? And you're not going to cash it? Usually that's met with some hesitation and, um, you know, kind of uh, or uh, kind of thing. And, you know, it, it says to me that, OK, so you don't agree with the president, but if he's going to give you, you know, six hundred dollars, fourteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars, whatever, you're going to take the money. Um, so, you know, how strong is your conviction? Uh, and, and I don't say that to, you know, cast, you know, conservatives or, or cast, you know, the right wing under the bus. I'm just saying, you know, it, there is benefit to what both sides do. You know, Republicans uh, have done great things in the realms of social justice over the years. Um, you know, Richard Nixon uh, signed several pieces of legislation, including, um, you know, extension of the Voting Rights Act and, you know, fair housing uh, laws and so forth that greatly benefited people of color in this country. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the same way, you know, um, and, and every Republican president has done things that benefit the broad segment of the American population. So, you know, it, it is disingenuous, and, and I'll put that term in, in quotes, uh, to just say that uh, nothing that the Biden administration does is all right with you. I mean, if you're hardcore and believe that, then, you know, my my homework assignment to you is to, you know, send back the stimulus check that you receive, you know, you know, deposit it back to the Treasury, refuse to accept it and publicly, you know, put out on your social media that you did so um, that would show that would show me and, and maybe others that you are, you know, ride or die with your your views. So just putting that out there. It's just a thought. Um, something else that Democrats need to do. You you as I said, the idea that you are going to convince or win over the hardcore people on the right with words really is a a. a inefficient use of energy for you what should be done is again work to find republican you know common ground and work with the republicans and you know let the results do your talking for you so you know we're, we're gonna let's take a pause here um we're gonna do something different this week because uh, it is uh, Black History Month. I have a a quote uh, from a young man that I came across on LinkedIn, and I'm gonna play that for you. His name is Emmanuel Ako, A C H O, and I'll post his his profile and contact info on LinkedIn to my Facebook page. But he had an interesting uh, uh, podcast on LinkedIn 
that I want to play for you. So we're going to do that. Uh, it's, it's a few minutes long, but when we come back on the other side, we will pick up our discussion on the uh, legislative agenda and the political agenda going forward. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this break. So why isn't there a white history month? A question I thought we'd move past, but I'm still getting gas. So here we are. The short answer, every month is white history month. But allow me to lend a further explanation. In 1915, a black scholar, Dr. Carter Woodson, he founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in order to promote black achievements and black awareness. Later on, he and his colleagues, they created Negro Achievement Week. Now, this was one week marked in February because that was a birth month of black scholar Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, two pivotal figures in black history. Now, I personally don't love the term Black History Month because black history is truly just our history. However, for so long in this country, we have neglected the achievements of black individuals. And as a result, Black History Month must exist. Think about it. You can remember the, the, the first Harvard graduate that was black or the first black vice president, but we rarely ever talk about the first white person to ever do something because that's called the news. And for so long, we've always esteemed white accomplishments. In a few weeks, we'll be celebrating Valentine's Day. But if you only ever celebrated your significant other on that day, it would actually undermine the relationship that you all have in the same manner. Don't just celebrate black history on Black History Month, but educate yourselves and celebrate black history because it is our history all year long. And welcome back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. I hope you found that uh, segment uh, interesting. Uh, it, it was you know, very informative and insightful. And uh, the gentleman in question, uh, Emmanuel Eko, or Ako, uh, has several other interesting conversations uh, that can be had. If you go through LinkedIn and just type in his last name, A-C-H-O, and you'll pull up his profile and you can go to his information. He has uh, quite a few interesting conversations that he's posted. So something worth checking out, not just, you know, related uh, to politics, but just in general, some good information. So, all right, let's return back to what we were talking about. Um, spent the last segment talking about some of the Democratic things that need to do. Wanted to just touch on a few of the Republican to-dos as we, you know, move further into the Biden administration and, you know, whatever comes beyond that. Um, one of the things that I think Republicans need to do, and it's important for them to do, is that uh, they need to recognize the new realities that exist as a result of the 2020 election. Now, granted, they made gains in the House and managed to uh, achieve the 50-50 tie uh, in the Senate. Uh, but as they look forward to the midterms coming up in 2022, uh, I think they need to realize that the, the strategies that they used in 2020 uh, could very easily work against them uh, going forward, particularly you know, if, if the Democrats are able 
to achieve some real progress and make some real impacts uh, with the coronavirus. You know, if infection rates keep going down and hospitalizations continue to go down, uh, as the number of vaccinations go up, and as the messaging uh, that is much more consistently being presented by the Democrats in terms of the scientific and medical uh, priorities that have been you know, spoken about uh, over the course of the past year uh, as we've dealt with the pandemic, uh, I, I think what you will see is you know, a, a larger segment of the population. And in particular, I think uh, something we don't uh, talk about as much is the independent voters. Uh, we did a show way back in, in, in um, our, our first year where we talked about the percentage of voters uh, between Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And you, know, it, you need to keep in mind that independent voters in this country, and that is people who are neither Democrat nor Republican, uh, but who identify as independent or you know, are uh, identified with other parties, you know, not D and not R, uh, represent uh, more than 40% of the electorate. So if the, you know, from, from a Republican standpoint, if the Democrats are making, you know, big inroads in, you know, moving the independent voters more to alignment with them than with Republicans, then Republicans are going to have a very serious uphill battle in, you know, maintaining, you know, what levels of, you know, participation they have in the House and Senate uh, and, you know, what that means in terms of the 22 midterms and the 24 general election coming up, as well as, you know, midterms and generals, you know, down the road. Uh, if, you know, overwhelming numbers of independent voters vote in alignment with the Democratic Party, the Republicans are going to have a problem, uh, you know, and you can, you can compound that by, you know, should... Donald Trump decide that he is going to, in fact, uh, raise a third party and run uh, for president again in 2024, assuming, of course, that, you know, he is acquitted in the second impeachment and not precluded um, by congressional edict that he cannot run for public office ever again. Uh, if he, you know, moves forward with a third party or if someone else you know, stands up a third party, you know, in alignment with uh, the ideals that, you know, Trump stood for during his term, uh, the Republican Party is is pretty much going to be fractured, you know, in half, uh, at least. Uh, and if, if they are a fractured party, then, you know, they are, you know, not going to get anywhere near the number of electoral votes that Donald Trump got. And basically, they are going to guarantee, you know, Republicans, you're going to guarantee an overwhelming Democratic majority in the House and in the Senate for years to come. Um, you know, I, I saw one uh, article and, and I've heard conversations that said, you know, should that happen, uh, it's likely the Democrats could go well north of 400 electoral votes in the 2024 election, 
which would put the Republican Party way out of power like they haven't seen since the, you know, the 50s. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I say that to say that, you know, Republicans are known for, you know, thinking long term, playing a long game strategy. And, you know, you need to think about how your politics of division, which has been kind of the, the status quo for the, the four years of the Trump administration, how well is that going to play for you going forward? Uh, should the Democrats prove uh, reasonably successful in their agenda in the first four years of the Biden administration? Um, you know, that, that doesn't even take into account the possibility of a second Biden term uh, or the possibility of a la, you know, Reagan and Bush that you have a two term president followed by a one or two term uh, vice president that runs for president. Uh, so, you know, there is a, a whole lot of turbulence ahead unless the Republicans really take a hard look um, at their strategy and make some serious adjustments to how they are, are going to exercise the political game going forward. Um, you know, realize that, you know, even though the margins are slim in the Senate and, you know, the, they made some significant inroads in decreasing the Democratic majority in the House, uh, that right now the Democrats run the game. And, you know, it, it is possible if the Democrats are smart and, you know, modify their strategy, uh, you know, strategically and tactically to a more long term uh, game play on their part that they could build on, you know, their majorities and, you know, and basically, you know, guarantee a Democratic agenda through, you know, at least the the. Uh, 24 to 28 term and perhaps beyond. So, you know, Republicans, you're going to need to really look hard at, you know, what you did over the course of the four Trump, four years of the Trump administration and think about, you know, given the new realities that are in place and what the 2020 election in terms of the voting tallies said uh, that maybe some change in strategies might be uh, in your best interest. Um, and, you know, along that lines, it's not just at the federal level. For the states, you know, what we are seeing and, and what is starting to shape up, and granted, realize that we're only three weeks into the new administration, but the Republican strategies uh, that they have used over the last, you know, 20 years are still being played. Um, you know, the, the Republicans are still practicing and still promoting uh, very, very, you know, broad voter suppression tactics. They are still, you know, working to limit the number of you know, non-Republican voters that can vote. And the states are recognizing that, you know, there are changes that they are trying to make that could actually backfire and hurt the Republicans in a broader sense, let alone 
at the state level and the local level. Um, some things that, that have come out, um, the Heritage Foundation uh, on February 2nd uh, put out a, a brief white paper that talked about uh, some of the best practices that states should adopt to combat, you know, suspected election fraud or, you know, uh, uh, better handle the election process. And they put out a list of nine best practices. I'm just going to go through that. I will post uh, a link to this as well on the Facebook page uh, where you can read the full, uh, the full article. But uh, the, the things they said that you know, states should be doing, some of the best practices, and number one, verify the accuracy of voter registration lists. And you know, with the advent of computerized statewide voter registration, these lists should be designed to be interoperable so that they can communicate seamlessly with other state record databases to allow frequent exchanges and comparisons of information. Uh, the second, uh, verify the citizenship of voters. And, and this is something that's been brought up you know, time and time again uh, under the, the umbrella of you know, limiting how many people or you know, where or when people can vote. Uh, only lawful citizens can vote in federal elections. States should therefore require proof of citizenship to register to vote as well as verify the citizenship of registered voters with the records of the Department of Homeland Security, including access to the E-Verify system. Uh, and again, these recommendations come from the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative-leaning uh, organization. Uh, require voter ID. Well, this is not news. This has been something that's been a hue and cry uh, at the, the, the state and federal level uh, by the Republicans for a very long time. Um, and, you know, essentially a voter should be able to validate his or her identity with a government-issued photo ID to vote in person or by absentee ballot. Uh, limit absentee ballots. Uh, this is controversial uh, and, you know, looks like it is shaping up to be one of the big political fights uh, over the course of the next two years as we run up to 2022. And again, uh, in the following two years, as we run up to 2024, um, there's already uh, laws that are being proposed to limit the, the where, the when, and the how uh, of absentee ballots. Um, and, you know, the Heritage Foundation in their list is recommending that absentee ballots should be reserved for those individuals who are too disabled to vote in person or who will be out of town on Election Day and all early voting days. Um, you know, and this, you know, it takes the current, you know, pandemic uh, totally out of consideration. Uh, you know, if if concerns about COVID-19 uh, reappear as we approach 2022, then, you know, this is something that could be problematic. Uh, prevent vote trafficking. Vote trafficking, also known as vote harvesting, by third parties should be banned. Um, basically what that is is where uh, groups, um, you know, such as, uh, you know, NAACP or, you know, unions or other groups gather the ballots of their members and turn them in uh, to the polling places. Um, and again, the objective of this from the Heritage Foundation is to 
uh, limit uh, the chances of voter fraud. Uh, number six, allow election observers complete access to the election process. Uh, and this means observers from political parties, candidates, and third-party organizations should be allowed to have observers in every aspect of the election process. Uh, you know, and you know, access being defined as having uh, witnesses present who can observe uh, but not interfere with uh, the process at every step, whether it's voter registration, whether it is, um, you know, uh, vote uh, identification on the day of election, whether it is verifying absentee ballots and so forth. Uh, number seven, provide voting assistance. Any individuals providing assistance to a voter in a voting booth because the voter is illiterate, disabled, or otherwise requires assistance should be required to complete a form to be filled with poll election officials, I'm sorry, to be filed with poll election officials providing their name, address, contact information, and the reasons they are providing assistance. Number eight, prohibit early vote counting. To avoid premature release of election results, counting of ballots, including absentee and early votes, should not begin until the polls close at the end of Election Day. However, if a state insists on beginning the count before Election Day, it should ban the release of results until the evening of Election Day, subject to criminal penalties. And number nine, provide state legislatures with legal standing. State legislatures must ensure that they have legal standing, either through a specific state law or through a constitutional amendment, if that's required, to sue other state officials, such as governors or secretaries of states, who make or attempt to make unauthorized changes in state election laws. And we saw this play out specifically in Pennsylvania, uh, and, and what it was was a lawsuit filed that the uh, Secretary of State, I believe, in Pennsylvania made some changes to the election process uh, that was within the actual voting time frame, and that was, was argued as being unconstitutional under the Pennsylvania Constitution. So that's just one uh, article. Uh, there was another one that came out again on February 2nd, uh, this one came uh, from CNN, from their wire service, and they were tracking more than 100 bills in 23 states that were focused on restricting voting. And again, you know, it, it's the, the driving force behind these in these states um, are, are primarily Republican related entities such as the Republican National Committee or Republican State Committees and so forth as a result of what they perceived as, you know, a, a threat from the overwhelming voter turnout of the 2020 election. Um, you know, and, you know, to, to, to give a, a couple of examples, in Arizona, and, and background states that flipped to Democrats for only the second time in more than seven decades, Republicans have introduced legislation that would repeal the state's permanent early voting list, which allows voters to automatically receive their ballots by mail for every election. And this applies in several other states as well. Now, 
contra to that is this is done in Utah. This is done in Nevada. Uh, I believe it's also done in Washington state and has been done for many, many years with success and no provable evidence of voter fraud. Uh, lawmakers in Missouri are also looking to eliminate concerns about COVID-19 as an excuse for requesting absentee ballots, while a North Dakota bill would limit who can vote by absentee ballot. Uh, other states like New Jersey, Texas, and Washington are considering bills that would limit on who can send absentee ballot applications or how widely they can go out. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, there are you know, calls for tightening up the uh, voter ID process, requiring photo IDs, uh, voter purges. GOP lawmakers are also focusing on voter roll maintenance, specifically looking to remove voters from rolls for inactivity. Uh, in Arizona, Republican legislature, uh, legislator rather, has introduced a bill that would remove voters who fail to vote in a four-year election and fail to respond to a notice. Mississippi is considering a similar measure. Uh, New Hampshire bill would allow election officials to remove voters from rolls based on data provided by other states, a practice that has been blocked by federal courts for violating the, na the National Voter Registration Act. Uh, and this came from uh, you know, this was reported out through CNN wire service by the Trust Project. Uh, and, and again, uh, I will I will tweet out the link to the article from CNN uh, and, you know, let you have access to that. And, you know, it, it just it, in the 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 month and a half since the November election, there are just, you know, a, a bunch of states um, that have, you know, put out bills. I've only mentioned a few. There's a, an article that was posted from the Voting News uh, that came across my um, research radar. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a part of the Verified Voting Project. Uh, and this lists uh, about a dozen or, or 13 or 14 different articles uh, that have come out about different states and what they are doing to uh, adjust, affect, and, and modify voting in those states. So I, I will push those out and uh, we will you know, get that information to you as well. So the, the dust continues to settle from the 2020 election. We will see going forward uh, how much traction these, these approaches gather and we'll, we'll bring that information to you. Wanna switch gears uh, quickly as, as we are, are running down on our, our time window here. And I, I just wanna revisit something that we talked about um, months ago in terms of you know, third party, uh, third political party uh, growing up here in the United States. Um, you know, obviously, as I've mentioned earlier in this show, uh, there are people that are calling for Donald Trump to run again and to perhaps create a third national political party uh, for him to run at, for president under. Not the first time that such things have been considered, but to, to just kind of add some information to it, 
for those that are are actively thinking about having a viable third-party option, uh, one option that is is starting to get some attention, and I, I dug into it a little bit, is to look at some of the natural constituencies that already exist within the House and Senate uh, as it sits here in the 117th Congress. And specifically, I'm talking about several caucus groups that already exist, which could effectively you know, be the catalyst for either a third political party or more easily and more effectively become a, a consolidated voting block uh, to offset the you know, very divisive bipolar uh, process we have now. What do I mean by that? Well, if we just look at three of the, the caucuses that I'm talking about here, and specifically the Congressional Black Caucus, the um, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and the uh, Caucus of Asian Pacific Americans, uh, the CBC, Congressional Black Caucus, currently has 58 members uh, in the House and Senate in the current Congress. The Congressional Hispanic Caucus has 38 members. And the, um, the Congressional Asian Pacific and Asian Caucus has 41 measures. If you add that up, that's 137 votes. Uh, that are related to these uh, minority caucuses that should they coalesce into their own entity would actually become a complete game changer in how political actions happen uh, in Washington, in the House, and in the Senate. Think about it this way. Democrats currently have an eight-seat majority in the House. The Senate is 50-50 with the Democratic vice president serving as the tiebreaker for Democratic control of the Senate. If you had a block of 137 votes, assuming 100% participation by these groups, um, that would eliminate either side's majority in the House and would also impact greatly the Republican uh, majority and to a lesser extent the Democrat majority in the Senate. Uh, they would be able to control how legislation proceeds simply by the fact of you know their yay or nay vote on legislation going forward. Uh, this is something that the Congressional Black Caucus used to do in the, the 70s and 80s and uh, again, I, they, they had about 40 members or 40-something members, and they voted uh, pretty much as a unified block uh, on certain legislations. And it was through that exercise of voting power that they were able to get uh, a good amount of civil rights legislation through Congress at a time when there was still some resistance to get it done. So... Food for thought, something to think about. We're going to talk more about third-party options in upcoming shows. But for now, that's pretty much going to run out our clock for this week. Uh, again, you know, happy Black History Month. Check out the uh, articles that I've posted on the Fired Up Facebook page. 
That's Fired Up Radio on face on Facebook.com. If you want to email the show, we're at FiredUpRadio at Yahoo.com. Please reach out. I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, please stay safe out there, everyone. Take care. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. You know, do your distancing. And I look forward to speaking to each and every one of you again in seven days. Take care, everybody. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.